0: So this is basically alt.net goes WPF.
1: Exactly. That is, that's an ex- excellent way to capture it. Welcome to Pixelate
0: Radio. On the web at getpixelated.com. That's getpixel, the number eight, ed.com. Now, here's your host, Greg Shoemaker. So what's in the name anyway? Well, if your name is the composite application guidance for WPF, you might just want to be called Prism. And to sort everything out today, we're joined by Brian Noyes, who's going to introduce us to Prism and help make sense of all of the details. Now, not only was Brian a consultant on the development team, but he's also a prolific writer, a member of INETA, an MVP, and a regional director. For show notes, you can go to getpixelated.com slash shows slash Prism. That's P-R-I-S-M. So I'm poking a little bit of fun at the Patterns and Practices group. Prism, which is the composite application guidance for WPF. That's just really long to say, and I just can't get myself with a straight face to call it CAG all the time. So we will call it Prism for for the length of our interview here. You know, Prism is is a really good code name, and Microsoft has had a, a really good history of coming up with cool code names. Even if the product names kind of fall flat a little bit but you know you've got prism and you've got atlas and avalon and indigo and all these cool code names and hey did you hear that there's a new version of of windows coming out yeah i hear it's called mojave so in case you didn't get a chance to check out last week's show we spoke with Tamara Adlin where she wants to make sure you're not revealing your corporate underpants and she talks about how to use personas in user experience development. If you want to check it out, you can go to getpixelated.com/shows/adlin. All right, well let's go ahead and get Brian Noyes in here. He's going to tell us all about the composite application guidance for WPF, also known as Prism. Well, Brian, welcome to the show. And you've had a lot of experience in speaking, writing, and presenting, and and working with a lot of different technologies. But in doing my research for you, one of the first things I wanted to find out about was what's it like to fly (laughs) F-14s? That
1: one always seems to come up. somehow. that's the the cool factor in my background that doesn't matter what I do now, I'll I'll never stop being that. Uh, Flying F-14s was great. It was a lot of fun. If... If the career was all about flying F-14s, I probably never would have left it. But uh, the fact is that you spend an awful lot of your time just being a naval officer and managing troops and, mm. you know, writing evals and lots of administrivia that I didn't find particularly interesting. So the uh, the mission itself was great. The flying was a lot of fun. But uh, I guess I'm just a geek at heart and needed something to challenge my brain a little more. So I sort of moved into this career.
0: Well, you know, that sounds pretty analogous to what we even see in, in our industry is people start out as technicians and they progress in the corporate structure and kind of move out of it and get into management and, and things of that nature.
1: It's it's exactly that. Actually, I, I had always made myself a promise I would stay in the Navy as long as I was having fun. And I managed to do that actually for 13 years. And uh, But the point where I got out was exactly that scenario that I got to a level of seniority that... Uh, I had managed to carve out – there there are some sort of technical tracks within the Navy that after I did the initial like normal operational flying of F-14s, I went to test pilot school and, and was doing flight tests and basically being directly involved with the development organizations for the mission computer software and some of the, the uh, ground support mission planning software and stuff. So it kept me close enough to software, which I had already formed a love for at that point, but I still got to keep flying. And, uh, and then once I got to a level of seniority that there was almost no more chance of flying and it was all program management stuff, I, that's the point where I decided to bail for exactly the reason you mentioned.
0: Well, it's definitely understandable. You, you have to keep challenging yourself and, and make it fun. And now with technology, I mean, even if you look back five years ago, things didn't change the, the way they do now. And it seems like now everything is coming at a blistering pace. What, what do you do to keep up?
1: That is always a challenge. Work long days is a big part of it. Really, it's work work normal days and then work more on top of that to to do all the research and reading and experimentation and stuff that's required. And I mean, the other part, it's you know, been stated in many places, is you you just you can't be an expert in everything anymore. You know, even across .net, there's just so many silos of technology in the .net space that. Uh, I started out the f- when I first became an MVP it was as an ASP.NET MVP because that was where I was spending a lot of my time back then. But I felt pretty f- proficient with Windows Forms at the same time too, you know. But back then it was pretty much ASP.NET Windows Forms and the framework, and you you know there was a lot of functionality there. But you could be fairly expert in both those things. But now. You know, with WCF and Workflow and WPF and Silverlight and all the data access technologies and everything else, we were building up so many silos that you have to pick pick just a few and specialize in those. So I've pretty much erased half of my uh, ASP.net brain, and I'm fairly incompetent <laughs> in that these days and mostly uh, focus on the smart client side of things.
0: Well, so that brings us to Prism. How did you first get started in all this?
1: Well, I had already been out there you know, writing and speaking and and doing a lot of work with WPF. um, And actually, the Microsoft Patterns and Practices team contacted me initially uh, just as kind of an early advisor as they were getting started on the project. They wanted someone with some real-world WPF expertise on the team to make sure they weren't, uh, you know, weren't just making stuff up on their own without any basis in reality. And then after some short initial engagement at the beginning of uh, January, uh, basically ended up joining the team as a as a part-time developer, working with them one to two weeks a month until we uh, completed the project at the end of June.
0: And the thing that's interesting about how the Microsoft team handled this was instead of having an existing code base and bring people in to comment on it, they really started off by reaching out to the community and asking w- what you were looking for, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. We had a big team of advisors, too. It certainly wasn't just me. Um, we had, uh, probably a dozen very active advisors. I was really pleased to see how much community support we got because these guys, you know, once I sort of hired on as, as a part-time developer, I was at least getting paid for my contribution to the team. But, uh, you know, that we had a, a, large team of advisors and they were very, very active and very involved, gave a lot of great feedback and helped shape the product as well. Um, so that was a big part of it. Um, but in terms of you know starting from scratch, that was definitely a key goal. There is they had the composite application block that you know part of the team had actually worked on that directly, so they had the potential to just recreate that. Um, but that wasn't really what was needed. You know the composite UI application block was built around Windows Forms, and then they the most recent version does support integrating some WPF views into your applications, but. It, it, you basically run into a brick wall where you can't really do things in the WPF way. And WPF is sort of a whole new beast that, you know, out of the box, you can just build build apps the way you always did in Windows Forms, but then you're not really leveraging the platform. And so a big part of Prism and the composite application guidance, its formal name is, uh, you know, starting from scratch was a, a key piece of that to say, we want to make sure that we don't build something that's going to, tie the hands of the developer who wants to do things in the new wpf way we want to you know build something that supports that new wpf way instead of getting in the way of it
0: well for those who don't know why don't you frame prism for us and give us kind of a definition
1: okay uh, i'll do my best it's uh, the the hardest thing is coming up with a concrete term for it because uh the terms that Patterns and Practices has used over the years have kind of evolved. They used to put out application blocks, and then they did software factories, and now they're not sure what they're putting out because they they don't like application block anymore, and it's not technically a software factory unless you have some automation in it. And at, at the current time, there's no automation with Prism. But basically what it is, it's a, a set of guidance is the most concrete term we've come up with, uh, which basically says that it contains – a set of libraries, which those do have a a short name for them. It's the Composite Application Library, uh, or CAL for short. And that's basically the source code that you get. So a set set of library source code that makes it easier to build composite applications. So I I guess maybe I should back up and first sort of define what a composite application is. The idea there is that if you build a Smart Client app in the traditional way, meaning you sit down and You create a window in WPF, and then you just start adding controls to it and hooking up code behind uh, event handlers and adding more and more and more. You basically end up with a monolithic mess that's difficult to maintain and evolve. And so you typically want to break that down into smaller chunks, and you can do that with user controls. But even if you're just decomposing with user controls, Say you break your uh, your single window up into you know five areas of the screen, and each of those is a, a user control, and inside of those they have various controls, and then you have some interaction across those user controls. And then you start weaving things together with object references passed here and there, and event handlers hooked up from this to that, and it really just kind of moves the problem around a little bit. Even though it does start to decompose the app, it, it doesn't decompose it enough. Right. So a composite app is basically saying we want to break things down into small, modular, loosely coupled pieces that can, for the most part, be worked on independently. Now, whether that's because you have a distributed team or a large team or just because you want things to be loosely coupled for maintenance, uh, you still need the same kind of, of support from how you're building your apps. So composite application guidance, or Prism, is basically a set of libraries that helps you do that. Um, it's some um, patterns, documentation, and sample code that shows you ways to do that. It has uh, a reference implementation sample app that's kind of a full-blown business scenario. Not too complicated because we didn't want the, you know, the PRISM code to get lost in the functional code, um, but it's a stock trader reference implementation that shows you how you would apply these principles and, and code uh, libraries in a real-world real app. And then it's also a bunch of quick starts that show the discrete features of of Prism, uh, in isolation, one at a time, and how to use it.
0: So it's it's not a, a framework, but there are libraries that you you can reference and and get some functionality out of.
1: Yeah, exactly. And they you know wanted to make a big distinction of that. When you start to call something a framework, there's there's a certain set of expectations that come along with that. This is really more, you know, I would think of it more as helper code for there's a certain set of patterns that you want to follow to, you know, build your app in a composite way. And this is kind of like we went through the exercise and we really did start from scratch and and we focused entirely on building up that reference implementation app, the stock trader I mentioned and kind of pulled the, the patterns and the reusable code out of that instead of trying to sit down up front and think about how to build a framework without a context. Instead, we did what, you know, has proven a more successful path for frameworky stuff is, you know, build something real first and then tease out the reusable parts. So that's what those libraries are. Is really, you know, the, the reusable p- parts that help you implement the patterns. I wouldn't call it a full-blown framework, but... To some, it'll sort of feel and taste like one.
0: Now, the thing that seems to be a concern at this point is how much learning is going to be involved before this is going to be useful to someone.
1: That all—it's a great question. and It all depends on where you're coming from. So, I've given some training on this several times already, um, and I've had people from two ends of the spectrum. Meaning, if you are—you know—one of the one of the customers was just coming into Windows Forms and WPF, had no smart client experience at all. They have zero unit tests. Uh, They've never heard of dependency injection. And so they are at, you know, baseline ground zero, might as well be coming from a different technology in terms of some of the upfront assumptions uh, that PRISM has in it. And so they had a bit of a hard time following, you know, following the training that was just focused on PRISM. Because some of the core principles we have in Prism is that it's all about, you know, I mentioned the decoupling, but the decoupling is just a means to an end. And, you know, the end that you're trying to arrive at is something that's flexible, easy to change, Uh, testable is a big, big part of it because the, you know, that's a big focus of patterns and practices. Uh, The team that I worked on it was very agile uh test driven development test first test test driven development <laughs> uh you know daily scrums all that kind of stuff
0: so this is basically alt.net goes wpf
1: exactly that is that's an ex- excellent way to capture it because you know the the part of PNP that i was working with is is very much focused on the alt.net community and the practices being employed there so that you know if you're not coming from at least some exposure to that stuff, like I said, the main things are we use dependency injection we don't dictate what dependency injection container you use, but you know out of the box we happen to use the unity application block, which is also uh, written by patterns and practices, but you sort of have to be exposed to dependency injection as a pattern to you know understand what prism is doing for you and how that's one thing you know testability because it's it's so. Uh, fundamental in the way we put together the code and it 's a driving factor for why we have the degree of separation of concerns and stuff that we do. you know if you have never written a unit test in your life you 're going to look at the code and go, "Why do you need to break this stuff out this way you know mm-hmm. this seems harder than just writing it in a straightforward way, and the problem is that usually writing it in a straightforward way, meaning you know putting all the code in your code behind is not a very testable. Scenario, so that drives you towards some of the UI patterns like Model View Presenter and Presentation Model that we use throughout the uh, the samples in the code.
0: So, how do you decide when you're going to use Model View Presenter or Presentation Model?
1: That's a good question. Now, a lot of it, I think, is really just preference. Um, everything that you know, I mentioned. There's definitely some heritage there from uh, the Composite UI Application Block. That you know, part of the team had worked on that. I had done a lot of work with that, so that was sort of our starting point, at least in terms of thinking around the problem. Um, in Composite UI application block, everything was based on Model View Presenter, at least in the more most recent um, documentation and, and examples that are out there. And so that was one pattern we definitely wanted to you know make sure we support and, and show how to use because a lot of the audience for PRISM was going to be people who had used CAB and were moving into the WPF space. But um, as we move into the WPF space, there's another pattern that uh, – it's sort of semi-formal pattern that's been evolving around WPF that a lot of people are actually calling model-view-view-model, where view-model is a a single word at the end of it. and it sort of sounds like someone's playing the trick on words, but that's that's been sort of the you know the common name that's out there for this. It was mainly started by some of the guys on the uh team that built expression blend um and so we we got involved with them since a lot of people don't realize but expression blend is really not only the first you know really complicated w p f app that was written it's also built in a composite way. So they had already sort of, you know, went down the path of learning all these lessons in WPF for us, so we tried to, 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 you know, knowledge mine that as much as possible by seeing where their pain points were and and some of the things they learned in doing that. And they had followed this thing that they were calling model-view-view-model. And if if people go and search for that, they'll find a number of blog posts that describe it and, and what it is, but it's not really formally documented anywhere yet as a pattern.
0: Yeah, someone's gotta do that. We we had John Gossman on this show and he spoke about it a little bit. Oh okay.
1: Bit. Yeah, okay.
0: But it'd be nice to see somebody formally document it in a like Martin Fowler-esque type of format.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay, great. So I didn't realize John had been on there. He was our our primary point of contact on, on a lot of that stuff. Um and so what what we did in in documenting at least the uh the prism stuff is we went out and looked, and, and Martin Fowler does have a, a pattern documented called presentation model, and it's not specific to any technology, whereas most of the discussion of the view model stuff is in the context of WPF. Um, and we kind of looked at the two and you know looked closely at one on the left and one on the right and went, you know, these are really the same thing. So. You'll find that in all the PRISM code and the documentation, we discuss it and we call it presentation model as opposed to view model because we could point to some formally documented patterns around it. Um, But for the most part, they amount to the same thing. The the model view view model stuff is really more just a refinement and a specific application of presentation model, uh, you know, tying it into the specific constructs of WPF.
0: Now, one of the things we see happening over in the web world is we have this debate over web forms versus ASP.NET MVC. And a lot of it comes down to culture and preference. When you're looking at Prism, at what point do you say, even though I might come from a different culture and have different preferences, that this really makes sense for the type of application I'm building? So what kind of application is really going to benefit from using this type of approach?
1: You know, we had a lot of discussion around that um, because at first we were trying to you know trying to catch who does this apply to, and the easiest people you can say it applies to is anyone who has a large development team that's partitioned into kind of you know smaller sub teams or even worse when you have distributed teams um, because you know the the less direct communications you have between the people who are working on an app, the less you want to have coupling between the pieces they're working on. And so, as soon as you have a distributed team, is it's the the, the easiest uh, easiest kind of scenario to think of putting it in is that you got a team say over in India and a team in the U.S. You know, not only are they going to have time barriers, they're going to have communication barriers, and you certainly don't want to structure your code in a way where you know they have to spend eight hours a day on the phone together just to get the two pieces talking to one another. So the more decoupling you can put between the part of the UI that one team's working on the part of UI, another team's working on the better. So it's it's very easy to point, put together the motivation for that scenario. But then we started, you know, breaking it down. It's like, well, you know, what is it about that that we we're really accomplishing? The decoupling also makes things easier to construct. It makes them easier to test. It makes it so that you can add functionality to the application uh, more, you know, quickly. And those are things that any team needs. So even a small team could definitely benefit from using composite application guidance. The main thing there would just be if they have the right culture um, and and that they're focused on testability and they get the motivations beto- behind separation of concerns. Um, you know, they're willing to put that – little bit of extra effort up front to put the right structure in place, such as, you know, separating components with interfaces so that they can be swapped out or so that they can be mocked out in a testing environment instead of just building the concrete glass. And so a lot of it is just, you know, sort of the background that they come from and, and understanding motivations. Um, but otherwise, it can really apply to teams of just about any size.
0: So that gives some great examples about how we can split things up among developers. But what about designers? Does this help us with the designer developer workflow at all?
1: Yeah, actually, I'm glad you brought that up because it definitely does. And that was something we, you know, when I said when we were trying to set our charter up front, we had that first and foremost in our mind, knowing that that was one of those things that was specific to WPF compared to Windows Forms. We wanted to make sure, you know, not only didn't we impede that, Separation of developer and designer, and the uh, and the you know flow back and forth of the UI between them, we wanted to you know facilitate it as much as possible. So these same patterns that give you separation of con- concerns between the the UI definition itself and the code that supports it, you know, they help with testability. They help with uh, being able to swap in different parts, but they also help that designer separation because the patterns that we employ that are To the extent possible, you know, the easiest way to think of it is we were trying to have zero code in the code behind, um, trying to separate out, have pure UI definition in the form of XAML, and then have pure functionality that supports the UI in either a presentation model or a presenter. And those would be the more testable parts, but they would also be very loosely coupled from the UI definition so that you could just hand it off to a
0: designer. That's like music to my ears. (laughs) I mean, no code behind code. That's just, that's awesome.
1: Yep. So, I mean, it's just that, you know, even code in code behind can be unit tested, but it can get challenging because as soon as you have code in the code behind, more code tends to accumulate there. And, and, you know, as soon as you have direct references to UI elements and stuff, will you get the behavior that you're expecting in your unit test? Probably not, because it's not actually being rendered. So that was the whole goal there, is get the functional code separated out and, you know, have as pure of UI definition as you can.
0: If you wanted to take the logic that you've you've created uh, in a prism app and then repurpose it to to expose it out of the console or web service or web application, is everything still really tied tightly into WPF or can you break it out easily?
1: No, we definitely tried to keep it so you can break it out easy and part of it is you have to you know define what kind of logic you're talking about because there's always some some amount of logic that is directly tied into you know the presentation aspects but the code that we're trying to separate out there is stuff that doesn't make assumptions about what the particular UI elements and controls are that are being used to present the data, that the logic just knows what the data is that's being presented and what some of the expected interactions from the user will be with that data. But in terms of how it communicates that with the UI, it's all done through interfaces and through events so that there's no direct references to the UI definition itself. But that logic code that I'm talking about there is you know, really pure presentation logic. It's tied directly to the fact that you're in a UI context. Some of what you mentioned with web services and stuff would be more back-end logic. Um, we do sort of have a model there for how you access that stuff in PRISM through what we call PRISM services, but those services are not web services necessarily. They're more an in-process, reusable chunk of, of code that can be accessed across the application Uh, That just puts a layer of abstraction there between the consuming code, which may be like presentation logic, um, and the provider of something like, say, customer data or order data that's coming from somewhere abstracted away from the presentation logic. So it could be coming directly from a database over a web service and so on.
0: Right, and that's your dependency injection. You're You're implementing it as an interface, and you really don't care where it comes from.
1: Exactly. But ultimately, you will have, for for a Prism service, you will have some in-process class, basically. It's nothing more than a class and may or may not follow a singleton pattern. Um, But you have a class that's providing services or data to your application. But, you know, how it's doing that is abstracted away. But, you know, one of the things that service may do or maybe all of what that does is just construct a proxy and make a, a web service call.
0: Now, as people look into Prism, they're going to see a number of terms kind of thrown around, the bootstrapper, modules, region manager, view model, composite commands. Can you take us through each one of those?
1: Sure. Um, There's really, let's see if I have it right off the top of my head, four main things that we get out of Prism. Um, One is modularity, and what that means is we have a, a mechanism there for, identifying, breaking down your app into modules, which are typically uh, a class library with a single class in it that identifies the module and and provides an entry point for it. And a module just is kind of a a logical wrapper around a set of functionality, um, a portion of your app, basically. And it typically has views and services and the presenters that support those views, and it may have controllers that span multiple views and so on. Um, So you break your app into modules, and so we... In the documentation and the samples, we we show you you know some examples of how to do that from a code structure perspective. And then the um, prism code itself supports two kinds of services. One is a module enumerator and one's a module loader that help you get your modules loaded up and identify which modules are available. So we've got this mechanism for you know creating your modules and getting them loaded at runtime and plugging their functionality into your application. And that's one big set of functionality. And actually, that part is completely reusable across technologies. It's not tied to WPF at all. Okay. Um, The next piece is the regions that you mentioned. So we have this, uh, in a general sense, we call this UI composition, which is that if these modules are loading up and contributing functionality to the overall app, the top-level app, the main window itself, usually will have very little knowledge about what the app is actually doing. All, all the functionality, for the most part, gets contributed by the views. And the, the main window basically just becomes a place for those to live. Um, you know, you can almost make an analogy here to ASP.NET master pages. They, you know, the top-level window is almost like the browser, and the, the contents of the main window are more like a master page that specifies regions of the screen that you can plug functionality into, okay. much like a con- content placeholder in ASP.NET. And then those modules load their views into those regions, as they're called. And so we have a region manager service that you mentioned that supports this, where as the module loads up, it can go and find out what regions are available and then decide which one to uh, plug its views into. And then up at the shell level, you can identify which regions are available just simply through an attached property on your uh, UI elements. Okay. Okay, so that's number two. So modules and regions or UI composition, Um, A third big piece of functionality are the uh, composite commands. So the WPF has its own commanding infrastructure built on routed commands that people may be familiar with. Uh, It basically allows you to tie a uh, control in the UI, typically a toolbar button or a menu item or some other button on your screen, tie it in and say, you know, when the user clicks this, I want some action to occur and then you identify the handler for that action somewhere else in your code in a in a fairly decoupled way with routed uh, commands. And you can uh do the handling of that code for something like a save or a submit or something like that. Or you know, the most common ones that people will, will use are that have built-in functionalities, cut, copy, paste. Um and that's all part of the WPF infrastructure. Where you run into some limitations with that in the composite arena is now we're talking about these loosely coupled parts of your ui kind of coming together at runtime and and the invoker of a command you know may have no direct references uh to the handler of a command and the big thing that's a limitation with respect to uh wpf's commands is that they're they are also supposed to be logically decoupled from the visual tree or the the composition the ui composition that's provided by wpf and the built-in WPF commands are all based around using routed events to move things around on the uh, on the visual tree for communication. So, you know, some of our motivating factors for adding something beyond routed commands was we wanted to be loosely coupled from the visual tree for the same reasons we talked about the view and the the code behind. Uh, we also wanted to address certain scenarios such as a save all or submit all. And one of the limitations of WPF commands is that they, uh, that there can be multiple handlers defined, but only one handler will be invoked. And there's some complex logic associated with that. Um, I've got an article coming out in the September MSDN magazine that talks all about this. Um, so if people want background on that, they can dig into that article. But basically, with only a single handler being invoked, Um, if you have, say, multiple orders open, each of those orders has their own handling code sitting behind it, there's no real way to get that action dispatched to multiple handlers. And so we created a composite command that addresses that scenario.
0: Okay, and if all this stuff is being loaded in in a composite fashion, I I guess the obvious question is, if you have a really control-heavy form, how's that going to affect performance?
1: That's a good question. Um, WPF itself, you know, already has concerns about performance. They've done a lot of improvements in 3.5 and, and even more in 3.5 Service Pack 1. Um, so, you know, if you have a the exact same form in, in WPF and, and Windows Forms, there's a slight difference in load time already. Um, but that's partly to do with the way WPF does its rendering. In terms of the Prism stuff, there is some overhead. You know, anytime you add abstraction, uh, you also take somewhat of a performance hit we did some heavy load testing and most of the performance impact is just based on the fact that we're doing dependency injection, uh, because that does use quite a bit of reflection under the covers to figure out what to construct and what its dependencies are and so forth. But in, in the end, I think our, you know, our worst case, uh, scenario with a, a really complicated form, we were dynamically adding, uh, you know, hundreds of controls and stuff. We were seeing, uh, know at most about a i, I want to say it was about 15 20 difference in load time which is not trivial but it's not so bad that you know the app's going to take three times as long to load and and usually you're talking about just you know a moment's hesitation there as the uh, as the form loads up
0: so that's just like at, at the form load it's not like at every click or anything like that
1: Right, yeah, because it, it, like I said, it mostly comes from the dependency injection in the construction process. So, uh, it's it's mainly in you know constructing each one of the views. Uh, internally, each view is just a bunch of UI elements. So the you know the cost of construction of, of each view is, is mainly just based on its definition and WPF's construction time. Um, so it's mainly the the cost of the modular loading and uh and then the initial construction of all the views and associated objects you know was just a trace slower than it would be with raw net right but uh you know we like I said, we did a lot of load testing, and it was not enough to cause us concern, so I don't think it will be for anyone else
0: now if you wanted to if you had an application that had a pretty well defined path of the the screens that people were going to, could you be loading them up in the background
1: yeah absolutely um the uh Modular loading process, we support on-demand loading. So you could also defer loading certain things and do them in the background. Um, and and it's usually in the loading process that it goes through all that construction. So, you know, if you had some module that contributed screens that weren't initially shown on startup and you didn't want to wait until they first clicked on the UI that, uh, that was actually going to cause them to load, you could just on a background thread have it go ahead and do the modular loading on-demand basically uh, for those subsequent screens, and then they should be all cooked up and ready to go when you actually go to swap them in. The other big one I, I definitely want to mention is the uh, loosely coupled events. So you know we've got routed events in in WPF, and they use the visual tree to kind of flow things up and t- up and down and do some magic, and that's also covered in my MSDN article. Um, but again, in this composite world where all your logic code is supposed to be decoupled from the UI. Uh, An event mechanism that's inherently coupled to the UI is not exactly what you're looking for. (laughs) So what we uh, came up with is uh, a mechanism that's very easy to use. Uh, It's basically one line of code on the publisher side and one line of code on the receiver side. But the big aspect of it is it makes it so the publisher and the subscriber, first off, can be defined anywhere in your app, particularly in a presenter, presentation model, controller, controller. Down at the module, in the shell, wherever you want it. Um, and there's both type and lifetime decoupling between the publisher and subscriber, but it's also a strongly typed um, communication model. So you, you define a, a specific uh, payload, basically almost like a data contract in w, WCF. And you say, this is the kind of data I'm going to flow with this event. You give the event a type uh, that uh, does the mapping between the payload and, and what the event represents. And from there, like I said, it's pretty much one line of code and on the sender and receiver side. And uh, we also provide weak references so that events won't keep the uh, the subscribed object alive, which is one of the most common sources of memory leaks in .NET applications. We provide the ability to dis- dispatch the event on either the UI thread, the publisher's thread, or a thread from the thread pool. And we provide the ability to specify a filter criteria on the subscriber where you basically provide a lambda or a delegate that points to a method that looks at the the payload and decides whether to notify the publisher or not when the uh, – or I'm sorry, notify the subscriber or not when the publisher actually fires the event. So that's a pretty cool capability. And, and that one – we basically have out-of-the-box uh, capability to use it outside of the WPF arena. We didn't get any samples or anything on that in, but I want to make sure listeners are aware of there's a contrib site. It's out on coplex.com, composite, uh, composite WPF contrib, and I'm going to be posting out there in the next couple of weeks a sample that shows using both the eventing mechanism and the modular loading with the Windows Forms app because those are the two pieces that are not coupled to uh, WPF at all. the Our composite commands, even though they don't use routed commands, they do use the i command interface defined by WPF, and the regions definitely use the UI element tree and, and things like that. So, so the uh, regions and commands are tied to WPF, but the events and modular loading are not.
0: Now, something you mentioned just a moment ago was that Prism featured type and lifetime decoupling. Yes. W- what does that mean?
1: Well, it, it's kind of a part of the PubSub pattern that this is all based on. So if people have ever seen the way ComPlus actually did events back in the day, uh, they one of their big features was something called loosely coupled events. And it turns out that um, the mechanism we came up with It wasn't intended to be this way, but it was more that after we wrote it, I kind of looked at it and went, boy, this looks familiar. And it actually follows a lot of the structure that Complus loosely coupled events did, which is you register an event type that specifies what the event looks like and what it's going to carry along with a middleman. And in our case, our middleman is we've got a service called the event aggregator, and that's kind of the one line of code As you go out to the event aggregator, do a get on the event type you want, and then do either a publish or a subscribe on that object, and, and you can do it all in one line of code with a dotted notation. Um, so by doing that, by putting a middleman in, in between, you provide a point of decoupling between the publisher and the subscriber so that they don't have to have any direct object reference to each other and therefore they don't have to have any type information either and their lifetimes can be independent so you could have a you know a subscriber that hasn't even loaded yet or even a publisher that hasn't even loaded yet a subscriber come along to the aggregator and say I want to get this get this event type and subscribe to it and then at some point in the future a publisher comes into being and starts publishing and you'll get the get the events whereas with .net events and routed events uh, you have to have a, dir- a direct reference to the object that raises the event, meaning you have some lifetime coupling there.
0: Hmm. This this just sounds like this guidance is like a, a boot camp on how to write professional software.
1: It definitely tries to be. I mean, that was one of our goals: is to say, you know, what are the things everyone really should be doing if they if they care about maintainability and, and testability and all those things, and uh, and then let's let's not only show them how to do it, but make it easier to do it by providing some reusable code for it.
0: So if, if people want to learn more about it or well about you and, and the patterns, you've got your uh, MSDN article that's coming out in September.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's actually not specific to Prism. That's more on the routed events and routed commands of WPF. Okay. In that same, in that same issue, there's an article by Glenn Block was the product planner on the team and he wrote an article on Prism that'll be in that same issue. Okay. Um, I've also got an article coming up in the next, I believe it's the next uh, issue of Code Magazine, where I wrote another article on Prism that kind of piggybacks on on Glenn's article is more of a a feature overview, and mine's more of a how-to, let's build an app uh, with Prism. Okay. So people can find the uh, code at either Microsoft.com slash composite WPF, all is one word, or I also put it on Shrinkster. If you go to Shrinkster.com slash 11CharliePapa, 11CP, uh, that'll take you to that Microsoft landing page.
0: Very cool. Well, Brian, thanks a lot for spending time with us today. I think it's uh, probably going to help out a lot of people.
1: Sure thing. Glad to be here.
0: Well, I hope you get a chance to check out the show notes. I've got some links to some resources there. Brian spent a lot of time talking about different patterns that were implemented in Prism. And if you haven't had a chance to really dig into those patterns, you can always check out the design patterns, the original Gang of Four book. For me, it's pretty academic. It's pretty heady. And since usually I'm not the smartest guy in the room, I like to check out um, first design patterns. And they they just kind of, the headfirst series has a really good irreverent sort of uh, natural and and laid back way of presenting technical information. So I have links to both of those there, as well as links to the CodePlex sites where you can download everything and and check out all the bits, including the Contrib site. Very much looking forward to what Brian's cooking up as far as implementing some of these patterns, not in WPF, but in WinForms. And seeing those patterns implemented that way, it'll be interesting to see if we can use it for the web or anywhere else. So I'm very much looking forward to that. So until next time, I hope you have a great day. This is Craig Shoemaker, and I'll be talking to you soon. Pixelate Radio, on the web at getpixelated.com. That's getpixel, the number 8, ed.com. All rights reserved, copyright 2008. Infragistics, powering the presentation layer. Infragistics.com.